Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word pirate as a person who attacks or robs a ship at sea. Well, I was once a pirate, but I never remember robbing or attacking any ship at sea. Another definition is a person or persons who make an illegal radio or television broadcast. Hmm, now we're getting closer. The word illegal in this definition has encouraged a lot of debate down through the years, and I will leave it for people who are qualified in legal matters to argue this one further. The words illegal and pirate were used mainly and regularly by those who regarded Skull and Crossbone Radio as a threat to their own well-being and success. The Department of Posts and Telegraphs, as it was then known as, and the Gordish Iacona, on the other hand, used common sense and saw pirate radio operators as providing a badly needed service to local communities as opposed to breaking any law. Once you kept your nose clean, they generally didn't bother you. Otherwise, they did have the ability to close a pirate radio station down at any time they so wished. However, on December 31st, 1988, it all ended. Or, as it is often referred to, the day the music died. The relevant minister of the day, Fianna Foyle's Ray Burke, saw his long-awaited and debated legislation come into force. All pirate radio stations would have to close on that day and date. And if you had any funny notions about continuing, the 1988 Act also made it illegal to advertise or support pirate radio. It's now 30 years exactly since the pirate radio stations were forced to close down. And this evening, in the first of a two-part program, we speak to some of the people involved in pirate radio. People like myself who are proud to call themselves pirates. Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. I was always under the impression that the history of pirate radio in Ireland began roughly around 1940, when Mayo man Sean McNeela died on hunger strike in Arbor Hill military detention barracks. McNeela had spent 55 days without food, protesting his arrest for operating a pro-IRA pirate radio station. But broadcast historian Eddie Bowen's recent pirate radio exhibition in the City Library in Cork told me different. In his book, Rebel Radio, Eddie quotes the Freeman's Journal, which reported on April 1916 that rebel radio was conceived in sin and broke down the walls of silence built by the enemy. The rebels' launch of their very own radio station in April of 1916 was a real and tangible success during the Easter Rising. So, a case of the longer you live, the more you learn. Like almost all of my fellow pirates, my induction into the world of radio was in no small way due to Radio Luxembourg, and to a lesser extent by pirate radio station Radio Caroline, which operated from a ship on the North Sea. 
I say to a lesser extent, not because Radio Luxembourg was our main choice, but because it was at times difficult to pick up or tune into Radio Caroline. My C103 colleague Nick Richards began his radio career on board the Mi Amigo, the ship that was home to Radio Caroline. For us young music lovers at the time, Caroline was not only playing great music, it was also an exciting daredevil adventure. Interviewing Nick for this program was also an ideal opportunity to find out more about Ronan O'Rahilly, the man behind Radio Caroline, and to discover more about his determination to break the record company's control of popular music broadcasting in the UK at the time. You are listening to Nick Richards on Radio Caroline. Music Radio! Radio Caroline! Three to go as we count down the first personal top five this Sunday afternoon. It's the top five sent to us by Elaine Martin. At number five, Brian Ferry, Slave to Love. That's the number four song, Every Time You Go Away, from Paul Young. We were talking about Paul Young just the other evening out here. Yeah, not exactly a heated discussion, but I think we all agreed. Paul Young, he's an okay sort of a guy. We're into him. Caroline on 558 on a very, very bumpy old North Sea this Sunday afternoon. I remember going into a newsagent's and I saw this magazine. It was called Radio and DJ Monthly. And I, I just picked it up, uh, it was a glossy magazine, and I picked it up just out of interest. I thought well, that could be kind of curious to look through and eating my sandwiches, lunchtime, going through it. And that was the moment I got the bug. Now, it was all about um, Radio Luxembourg DJs, BBC Radio 1 DJs, and right at the back there was two pages about pirate radio. And this was, what, mid-70s? And... Um, I vaguely remember my mother talking about um, in the 60s there were pirate radio ships all around the UK, uh, Northern Ireland, and um, and she mentioned Radio Caroline and Radio London. Hadn't I'd, I wasn't really aware of them, but uh, as I went through this pirate radio um, pages in this magazine, um, then I became aware that off the Dutch coast there was about three or four ships still broadcasting, and that just kind of blew me away that people were still broadcasting from ships in the mid-70s. And I think there was the Radio Veronica, there was Radio North Sea, uh, there was Radio Caroline and Radio Atlantis. And I couldn't wait for this magazine, the next issue, to come out. And I thought, you know, is that something I could ever do? And I thought, I'd love to be able to do it, no experience. And I, to be honest, I had no idea where to go. So I thought, well, it's just an interest I'll have getting this magazine and just seeing the people behind um, the microphones and just a little bit more. But it, I, I kept coming back to the back pages, this pirate radio ships stuff that fascinated me. Nick's interest in radio and Radio Caroline developed from there. His next step was to go on board a small fishing trawler operating sightseeing trips around the Mi Amigo. The ship, he thought, was smaller than he anticipated, but this, after all, was the ship that had been a thorn in the British government's side for longer than they care to remember. Nick's appetite to work on the Mi Amigo and present a programme on Radio Caroline was now insatiable. But how to go about it? How to apply? This, after all, was real cloak-and-dagger stuff. However, three months later, he received a call from a friend who, because of his technical ability, was invited to spend three months on board the Mi Amigo. This now was Nick's passport to achieve his ambition. So he spent three months on there, came off, and he'd made big enough impression that they wanted him to go back out there. And he said, um, the station's off the air at the moment because it had nearly sunk. Uh, it was full of water. Would I go out there? And I was, yeah. 
So that's what I did. I, th I packed in the job I'd been doing, which was um, working for cash in transit vans in London, delivering money and stuff. And I, uh, I headed out there and we, we went out and there was three or four of us on board the ship because it wasn't on the air. All they needed was a skeleton crew to look after it, to dry it, to paint it and get it in some sort of condition should it ever get back on the air. And I did that for about three months. And I remember it was an Easter Sunday. We were watching a John Wayne movie on the TV and suddenly we felt this bang on the side of the ship. We all ran out and there's this barge. This barge had appeared from nowhere and it was full of people. I recognised engineers and there was loads of Dutch DJs and they had like albums and singles under their arms and they all jumped on board. Little did I know, the next morning... They planned to go on air. They'd got fuel, they'd got water, they'd got money, new records and stuff, and the station was due to go back on the air on that Easter Monday, I think it was. Only downside for me was all those people coming on board, it meant there wasn't enough room for me. So I came off the ship, and to be honest, at that stage, I thought that's, that's my experience. At least I spent three months on board probably the most famous radio ship in the world. My next port of call is to the Cork Simon Community Base in Cove Street in Cork City. Their communications manager is Paul Sheehan. Paul and I worked for WKLR, a pirate radio station based in Bandon. The station was just off South Main Street and behind what was then known as Flor Crowley's Pub, now a branch of the TSB Bank. Prior to housing a pirate radio station, the premises had been an undertaker's. Paul and I haven't met for the best part of 30 years, so now is a good time to catch up and remind me how he actually got into this crazy business in the first place. I must have sent in a demo tape because I recall travelling to Bandon, it was about a month before Christmas in 1983. And at that point they were just setting everything up. They were, you know, building the transmitters and building the studios and uh, we were involved in all of that. So, you know, you could be stuck in doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, um, obviously, you know, programming was being organized and all that kind of stuff so it was a fairly intense time it was a fairly mad time i know there were a few uh, presenters from the uk in to advise uh, and consult and there were engineers there and there were technicians there and so you know there was a bit of a buzz around the place and i think there was a bit of a buzz around the town too in anticipation of this starting up talking about presenters from the uk names like steve marshall and tony allen would spring to mind of course absolutely very distinctive voice of tony allen who was used to record the ids for uh, the station in the early days i think too they organized uh, a jingle package which would have been kind of unheard of in those uh, early days particularly in, a, in an area like west cork and uh, steve marshall of course who was uh, a very laid-back a very polished presenter um, who, you know, might have been very uh, distinguishable in a, an area like West Cork compared yeah, to all the other real West Cork accent. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. So they were all there from the very beginning and they were all 
there uh, as the presenter lineup the day the, the station went on air. And was it always at what we used to say the back of Lord Crowley's or at some stage were you over in Cork Road at the very beginning? I think it was always at the back of uh, Lord Crowley's. That was always the location, if I recall. Before we went in there, it was an undertaker's, I think. <laughs> nobody wanted to do the late shift. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And I think everything was, uh, like, there was no such thing as builders being brought in. I mean, it was, you know, people did whatever talents they had. They were contributed. It was very much a, a cooperative affair, yeah. And then as time progressed, I don't know, when I came back from England full-time, I remember that the English presenters then sort of phased out and you had more Cork and West Cork presenters. And then you were doubling up as both a presenter and an engineer. <laughs> I see, I remember those. Which wouldn't be tolerated by any union now. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. And there were days where you just have to hightail it out whatever you were doing and, and take off sometimes on a bicycle to go and try and fix something. I think the English presenters lost, I think two things happened. Once, they, they lost their sheen a bit. I think they were maybe a little bit too polished. But secondly, I think the area proved to be just a little bit too small for their liking. But I, I think they were of the generation where they moved around a lot anyway from station to station and didn't kind of hang about too long. And I think the powers that be at the time probably felt that we were going to learn whatever we were going to learn from them. And there was nothing more to be gained for them being there. There were, you know, in the early days, certainly, there were probably some cost containments as well. My very first program was done from Capital Radio, which isn't too far away from where we are at the moment. But WKLR, to me anyway, was the first radio station, pirate radio station, that paid. And that was a big thing then, because you were talking about advertising, which was pretty hard to get because you were a pirate. That's right. And they paid regularly, which is the big thing. I remember before starting in WKLR, doing a stint in um, CCLR. They were based down there in French Church Street, up the step, uh, and into another old derelict building at the time. But if you got paid, you were very, very lucky he certainly went from week to week wondering if you were going to be paid uh, and where your next night out was going to come from but yeah I mean from the very beginning um, WKLR paid and to be fair paid regularly I think probably moving into that second phase of of pirate radio outside of Dublin where it was recognised that it needed to be on a more professional footing if anybody was to make any money out I think it was regarded as being one of the super pirates as they were known then eventually probably because of the sheer size of the geographic area definitely not the Talent. <laughs> well, of course, the talent. <laughs> I think if you think of it at one point, it was stretching from the outskirts of Cork, the, the signal from the outskirts of Cork City right down to, to Bantry and, and Skibbereen and even Skull. <laughs> this bizarre network of transmitters and farmyards and on top of hotels and God knows where else. It worked, yeah. right? I won't say it worked all of the time, but it certainly worked. And I think it was 100% local. I think it was 100% relatable to people in the area and I think over time it kind of grew its own stars, local stars and its own local talent Mm. and I think that's what made it stand out above everything else. This evening on Where the Road Takes Me we feature the first of a two-part programme which looks back at the pirate radio station era in Cork. For quite a lot of our present-day presenters, pirate radio was the broadcasting college for a later career in radio. A service was provided to the local community, it wasn't taken too seriously, you often fluffed your lines, but nobody really seemed to care. It was an adventure as much as anything else. But it all came to a close on December 31st, 1988. Thirty years later, on Where the Road Takes Me this evening, we look back at the experiences of some and concentrate on the day the music died. Part 2 in Programme 1 is just around the corner.
Saturday, December 31st, 1988. D-Day for all pirate radio stations. The day the music died. Today we're only a few days away from the 30th anniversary. On Where the Road Takes Me, this week and next, we commemorate the eventful closure in a two-part programme. Well, not everybody who went to the Pirate College for potential radio gurus or radio heads transgressed to legal radio, national or independent. And I'd like to acknowledge the very talented people I had the pleasure of working beside on Pirate Radio who went on to follow a different career. It's not a case of that they didn't make it. Their talent would certainly have ensured they would have if they so wished. Well, John Creedon is now a presenter on RTE Radio and Television. Like many radio presenters from the same era, John did his apprenticeship with Pirate Radio and passed with flying colours, obviously. Before really uh, Pirate Radio established itself in my time, there had been, back in the uh, early 60s and mid-60s, a couple of attempts in Cork. There was Radio Sundown, which I think operated from Blarney Street. He shall remain nameless, but a senior RTE executive was one of the main movers there long before he, he joined RTE. But it was it's that, the bottom line is, they were very competitive. I mean, we always locked horns with rival radio stations and uh, wouldn't talk to them or anything like that. But the truth is, we were all being sucked in by the same romance. The guys in RTE and the guys on the pirate stations and the people on ham radio which was huge if you remember John at the time you know yeah. the whole breaker breaker 10-4 thing and everybody had a CB radio And but you know what when I think about it at its simplest it was really a kind of a yearning for what was out beyond you know and Luxembourg brought it in it brought in that notion of yeah you know yourself mini skirts and Miranda and pop music and all that excitement and in a country that was devoid of colour at the time for young people particularly radio was the channel that just sucked it all into our lives and into our heads Who did you start with? I know I started with Capital who was sort of a, a breakaway from ABC Yeah Capital Radio Super Sounds of the 70s yeah, <laughs> I remember yeah. it well yeah. I started I can remember the day when the penny dropped Henry Condon who traded as Henry Owens for Manny's the Year and uh, was involved in radio not only in Cork but really all over the world Henry became a very big player in, in radio we were childhood pals he was from Emmett Place in the city centre I was from Coburg Street we met playing soccer on Saturday afternoons up in the Mardyke and from the time we were 13 or 14 we were pretending to be DJs and Henry had a big old reel to reel tape which just looks so like a real radio station and a microphone and a record player that we would go in there and uh, we would pretend um, in fact we even had he was Happy Harry and I was Dr John I mean we were 14 <laughs> or 15 and we used to practice on, uh, on, on this reel to reel recorder which was like the real thing. I remember playing Althea and Donna Uptown Top Ranking. That was brand new and really funky and the police arrived on the scene and I don't mean the Gardino, I mean the police, uh, Roxanne and all that. So there we were and then Henry managed to, I don't know where he got them, on cassette a couple of jingles. So we were playing in jingles and it was just all that fun. And then one day Henry said to me, there's a pirate station in Cork. And I said, what? There's a pirate station in Cork and it's down on Paul Street. So, of course, we went down. Like, we had better luck finding it, I think, than the Department of Post and Telegraphs. We just used our ears. And there it was, up the steps at the gable end there, just as you go down Paul Street from the School of Art, as you pass Pinocchio's, uh, the toy shop there, just to your left on the gable end. There's there steps, there still are, I think, going up the side of the building. And in there was CCLR. <laughs>
In North Cork, the pirate radio station was NCCR, or North Cork Community Radio. Their closing night was marked with tragedy, which we'll hear about later. The man tasked with technically setting the station up was John Cahill, originally from Buttevant. John now lives in the United States with his wife, Joanne. From the age of 12 or 13, John and his brother Curly were constantly involved in electronics and building transmitters, which might have gone exactly to plan, as often their efforts left Bottevin without a radio service instead of having an extra one. But the seeds for better things were being sown at such an early age. John later became engineer for C103, while his son Curl, along with Gerard Cassidy, are the two current engineers at the station. From his home in the United States, John has been telling me about the background to NCCR and how they went about setting it up. We blotted out the town's radio in Bordeven for about three miles. Well, we would have got into big trouble, I suppose, only we spotted the old tracking van before they managed to get us. So that kind of became, I suppose, something we were infamous for. And four business people, Morris Brosnan, Michael O'Sullivan, Noel O'Connor, and Pat O'Connor as well, I think, were trying to get a radio off the ground in Mallow. And I was working in Mallow TV service at the time in the television shop. And Morris remembered, Morris was from Liscarla, he remembered the incident of blocking out Buttevant. They were having trouble getting their system off the ground. So he asked me would I go and look at their stuff and I did and uh, in in that night I got it to cover the town. Their transmitter wasn't set up right. And I got it to cover the town and then that night they offered me a job to kind of do it properly and uh, I was insane enough to take it on. So within a week, the radio station had to be up on the air within a week. I never forget it. It was totally insane, John. I mean, I think I didn't sleep for three nights. Literally didn't sleep. I was totally exhausted. But we had terrible problem at the beginning to get it to work in the, before they officially went on air. But the, the four lads never gave up on me. And I, I remember at uh, about 10 to 10 on the morning that it, the broadcast was to start, it still wasn't working. And uh, Morris Brosnan came into me and said, I, I know you'll get it going. And I was soldering and cutting wires and doing everything, and uh, by 10 o'clock it was working. And it took off. It was just incredible after that. And how difficult or easy was it? I presume it easy enough to get presenters. It was, what happened, how how those four guys had got the idea was RTE had come to Mallow with their outside broadcast unit, I think some months beforehand, and and it left a void in the town, and Michael O'Sullivan and Morris were like in the insurance business, and they were, I I think they may have even been guests on the RTE day that it came here, or it came for a week, I think, and so, like, the bug, you know yourself, the bug kind of bit, and and it wasn't really difficult, I don't think, to get presenters. There was lots and lots of people became guests on talk shows and, and just, just loved the idea of being on the air and telling their story. And it, it was, obviously, it was, they tried to make it commercial, but it wasn't really commercial. It was really community radio in the truest sense of the word. The money that they made was ploughed back into it to try and keep it running. Nobody was paid anything at all. Everyone did it for the love of it, really. It, it was a phenomenal experience. Back in West Cork, it's time to meet another old friend, Donal O'Donovan. Donal came to WKLR at a young age and as a fledgling presenter. Like us all, he had an immense interest in music and had also been a huge fan of Radio Luxembourg. Donal went on to present the Irish music show at WKLR when I had only eyes for popular music. In recent years, I think it's fair to say that both of us have reversed our interests somewhat. All new presenters at the time were put through, let's call it, an initiation ceremony. 
to see how long they could withstand speaking on air without being made to laugh. The secret weapon we used to test everybody was a BBC sound effects album, which included the sounds of everything from all types of animals to even toilets flushing. Donal remembers, with real fondness may I add, those beautiful fun-filled days when very little was taken seriously. It's definitely one of these things that if I got the opportunity I'd do the whole thing all over again, to be honest with you, because I think I was very young, fair enough, when I got involved. I must have been only, as I say, I was only 17 even when I got that 9 until 12 show. But like, even people like that I got to meet there, like yourself, I met you back whenever you started, be it 83, 84. And so, I mean, I know you since. And I mean, the likes of Paul Sheehano and Roger Gregg and Steve Marshall and Darmerston, I suppose, Con McCarthy, Tony Allen, Jimmy Hayes, all dead now, like all those guys, but like Dave Heffernan, as he said, Ian Richards, you know, guys that had their names made in other stations around the place, but for a young fellow to have met the likes of those and to have worked with them and all that, unbelievable experience. It is a thing I would love to actually do all over again, I'll be honest, if I could press the rewind button now, I would like it. It wasn't taken too seriously, but I was amazed to read recently where WKLR was classed as one of the super pirates, so that would mean that at the same time it was properly run, and I think it was the first time that we actually got paid for doing it. Oh yeah, without doubt, because I always said it afterwards, I know now that we closed down whenever we December 88 I think I did my last programme maybe about a week or two before the close down date but I felt at the time and I'd say I probably I definitely wasn't the only fellow that would have felt it I think we were just ready to take off to be honest with you mm-hmm. I mean from very humble beginnings fair enough I mean the amount of you could think back yourself the amount of uh, cassettes that used to be in those ad trays like we had an, a, a huge amount of advertisers to be honest with you I think in the lead up maybe in the, in the last six months of 88 before we had to close down I think we were really on we were on a mega high like we knew that the end line was coming but at the same time I think we were uh, we were really and truly ready to to lift off like a lot of funny things happened in there and I'm sure you have a lot of uh, memorable memories some repeatable some not repeatable (laughs) some ideal for broadcasting some definitely not ideal for broadcasting but choose one or two that are choose one or two that are I suppose uh, not that many (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the definitely one of the funny ones and I've I've heard you saying this one before was um, when I used to do the uh, this is when I was there full time I suppose yeah because you had to fill in your day your day hours the fellow that was uh, doing the late programme at night did so many hours news during the day and you prepared it and you got it ready and all the rest of it and you went out to the newsroom and um, I remember being out there (laughs) one day like like that now and all you'd have you'd have the microphone in front of you you'd have your script written out or typed out whichever it was and the headphones on and um you couldn't see into the on-air studio if I'm right you couldn't you, you couldn't, couldn't see no, in no. you could uh, you were separate it, rooms it, yeah, yeah separate yeah. room yeah you couldn't see into where let's say that, that you were or Paul was or whoever's on but um, I remember being in there one day you now and uh, headphones on next minute I hear <laughs> hear coming through the headphones <laughs> quack quack <laughs> I'd say it must have been a duck I think it was a duck anyway or um, uh, farm animals and I was saying I said, what's the story here? <laughs> I, was, I didn't want to laugh. And I said, what am I going to do here with the story? And uh, I held tough into a grand job. Next minute, all I heard was a toilet flushing. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, that was the end. I, I, I got caught now and all right. But uh, that was one that was one note that uh, I can remember. But, but that was good fun, good banter between ourselves. You know, yeah. good crack. I have to say that Donald is being a bit too modest in that piece. Donald withstood the initiation test longer than anybody else.
try as we may, we just could not make him laugh. The last throw of the dice was on a Friday afternoon when I eventually caught him with the sound of a toilet flushing, and he gave in with fits of laughter. Another extra little piece to that story was later that evening I met the late Mick Toomey, who came from Borlay near Kilbritton, the birthplace of Charlie Hurley. Mick called me aside with a piece of advice. He told me that the next time somebody in the station went to the toilet, it might be best if they also closed the toilet door. I also believe that Dave Heffernan, the station boss, confiscated the sound effects album for good after the toilet flushing episode. The toys, in other words, were confiscated from the children. Events and days that will never be repeated. On the 30th anniversary of the closure of the pirate radio stations in Ireland on December 31st, 1988, we look back at the event and speak to some people who were involved. This evening is the first of a two-part programme on Where the Road Takes Me. Coming up in part three in programme one, more from Nick Richards on life aboard the Mi Amigo in the North Sea, home to Radio Caroline. Radio Caroline, am I corrected saying named after John F. Kennedy's daughter? That's right. The story is Ronan, uh, the owner, at the stage when he was uh, fitting out the ship, he'd flown to America to buy transmitters and studio equipment. And he was on the plane going over to the States. And on the front page of the newspaper was a picture of uh, John F. Kennedy at the Oval uh, desk in the White House. And it was all serious heads all around him. But under the desk, just messing with the whole thing, was Caroline Kennedy. Oh, I remember that photograph, yeah. Have you seen yeah, it, yeah? yeah? And Ronan said, that just has to be the name of the radio station, Radio Caroline. We're just going to cause chaos, just like Caroline Kennedy. And that's how the name came about. It was exciting, to say the least, to be part of a pirate radio station setup. Many young people who had an intense love of music were now getting the opportunity to play that music and to do so on air during a live radio programme. It was excitement personified. The level of excitement was intensified if you happened to be presenting on board the Mi Amigo, 20 miles out at sea and in the North Atlantic, one of the roughest stretches of ocean in the world. This was the case for my C103 colleague Nick Richards, he was keeping the dream alive for Irishman Ronan O'Reilly, the man behind Radio Caroline, named, as we heard earlier, after Caroline Kennedy, daughter of American President John F. Kennedy. A photograph of the little girl causing mayhem in the Oval Office was seen worldwide. It provided the inspiration to O'Reilly to name his radio station after her. He, too, would wish to cause mayhem in the monopolising world of British record companies and the BBC.
I wonder, was John F. Kennedy ever aware that there was a radio station named after his daughter? You'd wonder, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, You'd wonder, yeah. but it, it is fitting with the ide- ideology that Ronan has. You know, he always wanted to be someone that stirred everything up. And sure enough, did he do that over the years with Radio Caroline? You were in the North Sea, I suppose, one of the roughest seas almost in the world, or one of the roughest seas in the world anyway. What was it like when the weather began acting up? Well, the worst winds for us at sea was the northeasterlies. Uh, all other winds, the ship was okay because we were anchored between two sandbanks. But at northeasterlies, they used to come all the way from, down from Scandinavia, down the North Sea, and right between the two sandbanks. Normally on a ship, you'd probably get up the anchor and you might sail around to a Carmo location. Problem with the Mi Amigo is very, very old. It was very, very rusty. The engine didn't work. There was no ship's wheel. The compass didn't work. It was Really, it was a hulk at sea with a very big, strong anchor chain. So when a northeasterly came, we knew it was on its way. You would always listen to the shipping forecast. And all you could do was tie as much stuff down as you could. And then you just sit tight as much as you could. People often wonder, like, why did the the records not skip and stuff? If you've ever been on a ship or, or even seen a video of a ship in rough seas... It's a fairly gradual movement of the ship, although it's quite deep. You go down and then you go up. It's not sudden movement. So the turntables would, you know, kind of very slowly move whatever. The worst, when you could tell it was very rough, was the anchor chain. As you went up the ship and then came down, you would get the anchor chain. All the slack in the anchor chain would suddenly pull because we were you know, obviously connected to the seabed, and you get a, a jerk, da, 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 and that was literally the strain of the anchor chain. It couldn't take much more, and occasionally that might skip the record. But if it got really, really, really rough, then we had storm tapes, and they were just programs of either continuous music or a show you done on big reels of tape, and you just put those on. The only other situation when it got really, really rough, sometimes the generator, the fuel feeding it, it would just kind of, it wasn't getting fuel, so it would kind of cut out for a split second then come back on so hairy situation in a storm 20 miles out at sea and as i say with a ship which is no engine no wheel etc etc at the time didn't think anything of it you know you think you're invincible you wanted to keep ronan's dream of keeping radio caroline on the air so you went with it and it was a great excitement but now i know also very dangerous For RTE radio and television presenter John Creedon, the radio pilot light, or should that be pirate light, was always burning brightly. And then he and his childhood friend Henry Condon discovered that there was a pirate radio station in French Church Street, just at the corner of Paul Street in Cork. The famous steps up to it are still there, because I checked just last week. God, how we in Capital Radio had a loathing for this station. Competition, I tell you, was alive and well and brutal in those days. Anyway, John and Henry made their way to CCLR to seek a job. But jobs in pirate radio at the very start were different from traditional jobs. In pirate radio, you just didn't get paid. So we knocked at the door anyway. Shea Curran was the gaffer, a fellow from Dublin who was running uh, Pat Egan's record shop on Patrick Street. So there was no shortage of records. And um, we said, uh, any chance of an old start? And 
he said, how are you fixed for this evening? Grand. So we both got a slot straight away and away we went and it was just no turning back. But that was CCLR, Cork City Local Radio and that right. kind of bounced along there for a couple of months or whatever and, and then it moved on a bit and then there was Radio City. In fact, I quit because um, by the time I was 20, I was a dad so I had to kind of grow up and get a get a real job. I was going to college as well so I moved on from there, quit college, found a job and uh, worked in factories and then every now and then I would pick up pirate stations at home and the earning was there all the time and eventually Dan Noonan opened Radio City on Parnell Place. I knew him from the nightclub scene and so on and Dan said, you know, would you come on, you know, and I said, God, I'd love to. He said, I'll pay you. I said, pay me? Wow. So I took a job there with Radio City and I supplemented my income by selling advertising, a pinstripe suit and a pair of runners <laughs> up and down Oliver Plunkett Street, household linens, uh, Adam and Eve's uh, boutique was another place. So you'd pick up a few bob selling advertising and get your flat whatever it was, £15 a week on the on the air. And between the two and a bit of night work then in nightclubs and so on, uh, you could tip along. And that's really how it went for, for quite a while until the big, the Super Pirates opened. You know what they say about no such thing as a free lunch? Well, I did get a free lunch while with Capital Radio, but I did have to work for it for three years for nothing. Still, everybody did get severance pay when it closed and that came to the princely sum of £5 each. Luckily, I was still driving double-decker buses for CIE around Cork City, and because of being with Capital Radio, a lot of us got work in Crowjack's nightclub in Carey's Lane. I was doing Friday nights and Sunday nights there for £12.50 a night, and you still had to buy your own records. Anyway, speaking of Capital Radio, John Creedon reminds me that the forerunner to Capital was CBC and then ABC. There were two pirates trading in Cork there in the very late 70s, I'd say 78, 79. There was CBC initially, which was DJ Daniels and Stevie Bolger of what was Swingers Nightclub. It's now the Oliver Plunkett. But that was always a kind of a big entertainment place. And Stevie was great, I have to say. Loved being associated with Stevie. He he was a groovy dresser and Steve used to give us a fiver a week. Uh, which I spent, of course, on taxis going up and down Summerhill because we were based up by the uh, the country club. But the reason we were up there was because uh, there was a parting of the ways between DJ Daniels and Steve. So CBC continued. That was Cork Broadcasting Company. And Stevie started ABC, which was Alternative Broadcasting Cork. Like the People's Popular Front to Judea, we were not going to have anything to do with the other crowd. And uh, so we, we tipped away there for a couple of years. And um, God, we had some, I remember the day Elvis died. So it must have been 1970. Eight was it? 78 I think was it when Rocky Stone was one of the DJs and because the door was so heavily bolted and padlocked so that we couldn't be raided by the Department of Post and Telegraphs we used to come into the building and out of the building through a window and uh, I remember Rocky Stone coming in and telling me that uh, that Elvis had died so that's how it was in the, in the late 70s Tim Coughlin, who presents Totally Irish on C103 every Sunday night at 8, is also a graduate of the WKLR College of Broadcasting. Tim was around WKLR in the early days of the radio station when Brian Crowley, now an MEP, was presenting a programme there. 
Brian Crowley used to do a programme there in the evenings and uh, when I wasn't working, I was working in pubs around the town that time, I used to go into Brian and if there were phone calls coming in for him, I'd answer the phones or if somebody rang up looking for a, a certain song. The library that time was made up of what they call them, LPs. There was no such thing as CDs at that stage. That was going back to the very early 80s, I suppose, 83, was it 84? But um, if somebody rang up looking for a song, I'd, you see, Brian was in the wheelchair at that stage and he couldn't find the, the songs that were being requested. So I used to help him that way, as I say, by answering phones. That was on the evenings I wouldn't have been working in the bars. I don't know how long Brian was doing that, I can't remember, but... At some stage, he decided to go off to college, and Dave Heffernan, the, the man who ran WKLR, Dave the Rave, he asked me would I take over doing Brian's programme. He asked me did I know how to work the controls on the, the, the desk and, and that sort of thing, and yeah, I said I'd try it for a week, and if it didn't work out well and good, if it did, yeah, we'll continue, and um, the rest is history, as I say. I would safely say that I did every programme that was to be done in the station. I did uh, morning programmes, I did afternoon programmes, I did evening programmes, I did the, the graveyard shift from 2 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock in the morning Despite the fact that it was a former undertaker's building? Well I never saw any ghosts there anyway, definitely not That time as I say I was working in a, in a, in a pub in town and I think the pubs used to close at them at 11 o'clock so I was living in a flat about three or four minutes walk away from the where the radio station was situated I might go home about half 11 from the pub go to bed for Two hours, half eleven, half twelve, half one, get up again about half one, run over to the radio station to start a programme at two o'clock and uh, work away until seven, then go home at ten past quarter past seven, go to bed for a couple of hours and if I was working in the pub again that day, I'd have to be in there for opening time at half past ten. So I did that for about six months, I'd say, uh, roughly. The fact that I wasn't going anywhere, I saved a fortune. Mm. I was delighted with myself. I had a small fortune made. And you in, had two workplaces right beside each other. Yeah, because uh, the pub I was working in, uh, the Temple Bar, which is on the, the, the main street, it's now closed. Well, it's, the, the building is still there. Uh, the TSB Bank moved in there, but uh, they moved uh, from there again since. It was grand and handy because, as I say, my flat that I was living in at the time was in, on South Main Street, so I was only two minutes walk away from work and three or four minutes walk away from uh, getting to the radio station, so it was ideal. As mentioned earlier, most of the authorities took a common-sense approach when it came to pirate radio. The Guardie and the Department of Post and Telegraphs knew that they weren't dealing with criminals, but rather groups of people who were providing a service, a badly needed service which up to now had been non-existent. Once you kept your nose clean, you weren't hassled in any shape or form. If you didn't, then you could expect trouble, which was a fair arrangement. In North Cork and with NCCR, John Cahill says that it was actually help and not hassle that they received from the fire service, the Gardaí and the Department of Posts and Telegraphs. Yeah, in our case it was extraordinary. We had incredible cooperation from everybody, including the fire service who helped me put up a 40-foot sewer pipe on top of a house up in the Willows. (laughs) (laughs) The things we did was totally insane, and inside the sewer pipe was a 40-foot, I call it the fishing pole, it was a fiberglass rod that was supposed to be an aerial for the medium wave, we were trying to get a medium wave service going, and it 
it, it bent like a fishing pole. It co- we couldn't hold it steady. So I got the idea of two 20-foot sewer pipes to hold it steady. And so we put it up and had it held up with wires and everything. And the fire service actually helped us put it up. They also helped us lift the desk in through the window in the willows. Like, And, you know, the strange and mo- most disappointing thing about that 40-foot pipe was the service was useless. Like, there was a standard joke for a while in Charleville that if you wanted to hear Radio Mallow, as they called it, you only had to dial someone on the phone Mallow and you'd hear the radio perfect. But you had no chance of hearing it on an actual radio. You could hear it on the phone. It was useless to the world. And eventually, I kind of got it better, but the sewer pipe failed. But I remember there was some man, I can't remember his name, did um, a cycle from Dublin to Mallow for some charitable cause. And he actually got, like, this was all being done on the pirate radio now. So he, he got a Garda escort from Kildare all the way back in. And I had an old van. And they, they gave me an escort trying to make a live link from him, you know, all the way back into the studio. And like, they were immensely helpful. They, obviously, they knew we weren't nutcases, or at least we weren't criminals. And they knew that the service was good for the people. We weren't doing anything wrong. It was just a, 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 a technicality in the law. And actually, the law, our Irish law states that you have the right to free speech. So if it was ever contested in court, I believe, you know, the pirates would win on that basis alone because it's part of our constitution. But everyone was cute enough not to test it. And um, the hospital service, via the hospital radio show, the hospital loved what we did. Dave Heaney was doing a fantastic job. And so ends programme one of a two-part programme which looks back at the forced closure of all pirate radio stations in Ireland on December 31st, 1988 last. On Sunday next, just one day short of the actual 30th anniversary itself, more memories from former pirates, more tales from the North Sea on board the Mi Amigo, tragedy in North Cork on closing night, and the actual closing night itself, an emotional night for all. Thanks to John Foot and Sound and to you for joining us. We're back on Sunday evening next at 7. But in between, have a happy, wonderful, peaceful and a holy Christmas. From everybody on the programme and myself, John Green, take care and goodbye for now. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.